Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. My name is Matt Kressel. I co-host this series. This is the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series with Ellen Datlow. We've been doing it for... Well, Ellen and I have been doing it for a while. It's This is my 10th year. This is Ellen's like 15, 15th year. And the series itself has been going since the late 90s. It is always free. There is never a cover charge. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, to support the bar. And tip your bartenders who are working hard, Sagey and Dan, to keep you hydrated. So please... Thank you. Please. Um, I'm, I'm excited about our readers tonight. We have Angus McIntyre and Brooke Bolander who are going to be reading, uh, reading from their work. I am told, told they have uh, copies of their novellas for sale from Tor.com. So uh, can, we, can we hold them up so everyone can see these beautiful covers? Um, can you see them? Well, you can. Okay, here's the deal. So at halftime, so after Angus is going to read first. After Angus reads, you can come up and uh, buy a copy of the book and get them signed by the author. So hope, we hope you will do that. Um, before we begin, just a couple quick announcements. We have a mailing list. If you want to be on our mailing list, we I, I send out three emails. They're all exactly the same thing. One is they're all just announcements of the of the upcoming readers. So I send one like, you know. Three weeks before, then the week before, then the day of. Never spam you. It's kgbfantasticfiction.org. You go there, and in a couple seconds, a really annoying pop-up comes up and says, would you like to join our mailing list? You just put your email in, click yes, and that's it. You're done. Hope you'll do that. Um, Next month, August 15th, we have Jeffrey Ford and Michael Swanwick. You can clap. It's cool. It's cool. Uh, I won't be here, but Makira D. Rivera will be uh, subbing for me with Ellen, so I uh, hope you'll join us for that. Uh, September 19th. Ellen will be late to Worldcon because of that, so you better come. Uh, September 19th, Patrick McGraw and TBA, where you have someone lined up, but they haven't confirmed yet. October 17th, Lawrence Schoen and Tim Pratt. All right. November 21st, Leanna Renee Heber and Kat Rambo. December 19th, Nicole Corner Stace and Maria Devana Headley. January 16th, Victor Laval and Julie C. Day. So, yeah, we got a great lineup, and we got uh, more people lined up, but uh, some of them haven't confirmed yet. But uh, yeah, uh, 2019 is shaping up to be an awesome year. All right, so uh, any other announcements? Is that it? She's still working on her camera, so we'll. We'll come back, but uh, Angus McIntyre is going to be our first reader. Uh, Angus is the... (laughs) Angus is the author of the novella, The Warrior Within, published by Tor.com. His short fiction has appeared in Abyss and Apex magazine and in several anthologies, including Humanity 2.0, Swords and Steam, Mission Tomorrow, and Black Candy's Surveillance. Visit him online at angus.pw or follow him on Twitter at Angus M. At Angus M. Here's Angus McIntyre. Thank you very much. Thank you. uh, Thank you, Ellen and Matt, for... Can you hear me? Okay. Is this good? Can everybody hear me? No. 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 Okay, okay. Is there a bench? Should I, I, I just hold it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is better, I hope. Um, 
Thank you, Ellen and Matt, for inviting me. Thank you all for coming. And uh, thank you to Bo for graciously agreeing to share this rather tiny but intimidating spotlight with me. Um, I'm going to read you two pieces. The first one is very short and was inspired by a, um, a prompt image posted on io9. I'm a sucker for writing prompts. And they uh, posted this picture of a piece of uh, Victorian mining equipment. Uh, and uh, this inspired the following piece of flash fiction. My assistant is graciously showing it to the crowd. <laughs> From the journal of Thaddeus Fox, explorer. From Naples, I took ship with a Greek merchant bound for Athens, my ultimate destination. I was eager to arrive, but when we had been less than a day at sea, the master of the vessel explained to me that we would be calling first at Syracuse, on the island of Sicily, to land some cargo. Despite my impatience, I took advantage of the delay to go ashore, and so I was able to see the cargo in question being landed. At once, my curiosity was engaged, for instead of the bales and boxes I had imagined when the captain talked of cargo, I beheld the arrival of a most curious object. It resembled a small cart with iron wheels and a sturdy chassis. Set on top was a most ferocious-looking drill, mounted on a long boom, and driven by a veritable panoply of geared wheels. I at once hurried to the captain to ask him what it was. He studied me for a moment, and then drew me into his confidence. You, sir, are an educated man. I confess that I was. <laughs> then you will know of the great tale of the Odyssey, written by my compatriot Homer. I acknowledge that I was familiar with the work. And you no doubt recall the incident of the Cyclops, he said, well then, this island, this Sicily, is the very island of the Cyclopes, where crafty Odysseus blinded the giant Polyphemus. I frowned, for I could not immediately see the connection, but I was reluctant to admit my lack of understanding in the hearing of the crew who had gathered to listen. The captain put his arm familiarly around my shoulder. The Cyclopes of today are much diminished. Polyphemus, it is said, stood four times the height of a man and weighed as much as a dozen oxen. Today it is rare to see one more than eight feet in height, but they are a nuisance nonetheless, and it is well to be wary of them. Do you mean to say, sir, I exclaimed, in wonder that there are still cyclopes in these parts? I do indeed, he said, and here before you stands the instrument that will be their bane, that will drive the whole sorry race of monsters to the extinction that they merit, built by your own countrymen, but to a Greek design, for we have, if I may be so bold, more experience of these anthropophagous pests than any other nation. We have developed the wisdom of the Odysseus into a veritable science of cyclopomachy. He showed me then how the device could be wielded by just two men, the sailors scrambled to demonstrate, and the huge drill driven into the creature's one eye, blinding it. A terrible sight, sir, he told me. They howl and roar and gnash their teeth, but to no avail. The drill drives home, penetrating deep into the creature's brain until he falls lifeless to the ground. I was, as you might imagine, eager to see a cyclops hunt. Alas, I was to be disappointed. The tide was turning, and the captain was eager to set sail again. Reluctantly, I allowed myself to be led back to the boat, and the grinning sailors rowed us swiftly back to the ship. I sat at the stern and stared at the dwindling shore, hoping to catch at least a glimpse of the fabled monsters. As we boarded the ship, the captain made a most curious gesture. Turning toward the sailors, he closed one eye twice in rapid succession, thus. <laughs> if he had been an Englishman, I would have said that he was winking at them, as if they were all sharing some private joke. In the present context, however, I have no doubt that his gesture was intended to mimic the terrible denizens of the island that we had just departed. And the broad smiles and loud laughter of the sailors can only have been expressions of relief at having been spared an encounter with such frightening creatures. Now we switch to the, uh, the commercial part of the evening. It's an extended advertisement for, uh, for, this, uh, for, for this magnificent book, which is uh, beautifully... Wave the book. Wave the book. Um, beautifully produced by Tor.com. Many thanks to them. Um, 
So I'm going to read you the, uh, the first chapter. Uh, if you like it, I have copies for sale. Operators are standing by to take your call. Um, if, you, if you don't like it, uh, buy a copy anyway and give it to someone you hate. For the first story? Yeah. It was the picture that... Uh, Yeah, this is the first chapter of The Warrior Within. Uh, it's a space opera novella. Um, there's not much more you need to know about it, I hope, um, except that uh, maybe I'll tell you the protagonist is a person who has uh, more than one person living in his head, and this will become clear as it goes on. So here we go. On the day after the passing festival, three men walked out of the swamps and came into town to kill a woman. Normally... Carstman would have been one of the first to know about the strangers. But while the strangers were making their way across the salt flats that lay between the city and the distant marshes, he was a good four or five kilometres away, heading out of town along the road. He walked hand in hand with a young woman. She had lilac hair, and fine gold wires were woven into the flesh of her right ear. The grey wind jacket that she wore was crisscrossed with coloured ribbons. Her name was Mera, and he had known her for just two days and nights. On the road ahead of them, the vast wheeled bulk of a temple advanced at slightly less than walking pace, towed by a dozen tractors, its spires and minarets stark against the hazy orange of the sky. Long strings of prayer flags flapped in the wind. Behind the temple, a column of trucks and vans crept along in bottom gear, towing flatbed trailers laden with struts and panels, pieces of prefabricated housing that would be reassembled to make a new town somewhere further down the road. Young children stared sleepily from the cabs of the trucks, and last night's revellers lay sprawled on top of the cargo, like wounded soldiers being carried off the battlefield. Carsman and Mera walked at the tail end of the procession, holding themselves a little apart from the other walkers. I should go back soon, said Carsman for the second or third time. Mera tightened her grip a little, holding on to his large hand possessively. Why, she said, why not come with us? He considered the question. In truth, there was little enough reason to go back. The strip town behind him was like any of a thousand others, not much more than a cluster of shacks thrown up along the fringes of the road, huddled in the shadow of an abandoned builder city. The only man-made structure of any solidity or size was the temple, twins the one now moving ponderously down the road ahead of them. Even after twelve years, Carsman had few real attachments there, a handful of friends, some drinking companions, a couple of occasional lovers, no one he would really miss. The possessions he had left behind in his own shack would scarcely fill a small knapsack. Nothing he owned was worth the trouble of going back. At the side of the road, two young girls stood holding hands. They paid no attention to the crowd, which parted to move around them and closed up again. One of the girls had pushed her goggles up onto her forehead so, she, so that she could stare into her companion's eyes, and Carsman recognised her as the daughter of one of his neighbours. There was something so theatrically tragic about her expression but Carsman could not help smiling. As he watched, she dropped the other girl's hand and turned away. Her lover stared after her for a few moments more, then shrugged, turned on her heel, and broke into a slow jog, hurrying to catch up the trucks ahead. It was the same at every passing festival. Temporary alliances formed during two days of revelry, then quickly dissolved as the passing temple moved on down the road. A few festival pairings became something more permanent, one person might choose to stay behind with the lover when the temple left. Another would say goodbye to home and family and follow a new partner down the road to an unknown destination, attaching themselves to a different temple, making a new life in a new community. The arrangement might or might not last. Often, defectors simply drifted back after a few months, riding a road train back down the road and picking up their lives again where they'd left off. Cosman had seen it all before. On a couple of occasions, he'd considered the idea of moving on himself. But this was the farthest he'd ever taken it, the farthest he'd ever been from town since his arrival. He had the feeling he was approaching a point of no return. Mera tugged at his hand. Come on, she said. He let her lead him off the road and up the slope of the windbreak. For most of its length, the road ran level, raised no more than a half metre above the surrounding terrain. Here and there, however, 
great berms of concrete and earth were raised up on the sunward side of the roadway. Their inner faces were studded with niches that served as storm shelters. At their highest point, the windbreaks rose as much as 80 metres above the road, more than tall enough to protect even the tallest spires of a temple from a gale blowing darkwood. Carsman and Mera sat down on the lip of the windbreak, feet dangling, watching the convoy roll slowly past below them. There were already a handful of other couples there, taking advantage of the last few moments, or simply admiring the view. The view, such as it was, was made up of alternating stripes of colour. Immediately below them lay the broad band of the world-girdling road, its smooth black surface strangely resistant to the blowing dust that coloured everything else a dull red. The road ran arrow straight all the way to the horizon in either direction, so flawless in its undeviating regularity as to seem almost unreal. Seen from above, it looked like a fissure splitting the planet in two. On either side of the road lay a wide strip of desert, dry red earth and rock, speckled here and there with greyish clots of dead vegetation. From the top of the windbreak, you could make out the irregular scratches of dry watercourses, the abstract writing, like abstract writing on the dry ground. Rainstorms strong enough to fill them were rare. Over the years, the stream beds gradually filled with red dust, and the wind blurred their outlines, softening and smoothing them until they blended back into the desert. Far to sunward, it was just possible to make out the beginning of the next band of colour, a swathe of yellow-grey mudflats that marked the limits of the desert. From their present vantage point, nothing else was visible, but Carstman had climbed some of the taller towers in the Builder City and knew that the banding continued. Beyond the mudflats, a belt of swampland, visible as a confused scribble of contrasting textures, floating vegetation mixed with glimmering patches of open water, rusty knobs of rock outcrops. On rare, clear days, you could sometimes see beyond the swamps to a white line of breaking waves and the red glint of the open ocean beneath the liquid shimmer of heat haze. Over it all hung the fat orange blob of the sun, perpetually hovering a few degrees above the horizon. So why not come with me? Mera asked. Carstman shrugged. I have, he said, responsibilities. He was aware of the absurdity of the phrase even before he finished speaking. He bit his lip, embarrassed by his own pomposity. Mera took him seriously. Because you're the mayor, she said. I, what? No, that's just something they call me. It's more a joke than anything else. Carsman's mayorship was entirely unofficial. His qualifications no more than a steady temperament and the willingness to occasionally thump a few heads together in the interests of keeping the peace. The local Muljadi held the monopoly on spiritual and political power, the temple guards were the only sanctioned wielders of coercive force. And you're not curious to see what's down the road, Mera continued. He shrugged again. Privately, he doubted that whatever lay farther down the road was any different to what he had already seen. He had travelled more than most, and all he had ever seen was the same red desert and dry scrub, the featureless black ribbon of the road, broken at intervals by windbreaks or the clusters of gaunt grey towers left by the builders and in the lee of the towers, the haphazard jumbles of strip towns, each one much like another, anchored in place for a few years by a temple, and then packed up and trucked farther down the road when the temple's Muljadi decided it was time to move on. Carstman had lived in a few strip towns before he came to rest here. As far as he was concerned, there was little enough to choose between them. He refrained from saying any of this, because once he started listing the ways that every place on the road resembled every other place, he would eventually have to acknowledge that the only difference between this strip town and the next would be the presence of Mera. Then he'd have to tell her that, that was not quite enough to convince him to pick up and move. He had no wish to hurt her feelings. He genuinely liked her. She was smart and funny and spontaneous, and the last two days had been good. In the end, though, she was not quite enough to overcome his own inertia. Almost, but not quite. He turned his head and looked back along the road toward the towers of the city, grey phantom shapes in the haze. He could just make out a few tiny figures crawling on some of the higher galleries. Scavengers, trying to pry loose a few crumbs of salvageable material, were hoping to stumble on a hidden doorway to some section that hadn't already been picked over 30 times before. The sight of the towers made up his mind for him. He stood up, brushing the dust from the seat of his coveralls. I should be getting back, he said. Mera's face was unreadable. 
her eyes hidden by the scratched yellow plastic of her wind goggles. If you change your mind, you know where to look for me. He nodded. If you change yours, I'll be here. He stooped and kissed her lightly on the forehead. She squeezed his hand. Good luck, Carson. Luck, Mera. He turned and started to descend the slope of the berm, heading back toward the city. When he reached the road, he glanced back. There was a figure standing on top of the windbreak, silhouetted against the sky, but he could not be sure that it was her. When Steck finally found him, Carsman was sitting behind a windbreak at Kido's shop, picking through a handful of roasted sand nuts, trying to decide whether it was worth walking down to the temple and turning a prayer wheel a few times to earn himself a better breakfast. He was dimly aware that something was happening outside, but in his present mood he felt no curiosity about it at all. He cracked another nut between his teeth, spat fragments of shell into his hand, and popped the round grey core into his mouth. He sucked on it slowly, running his tongue over the fibrous surface. There you are, Steck said, putting his head round the corner of the windbreak. Here I am, Carsman agreed. He rubbed his hands together, scattering bits of broken shell on the ground. I thought you left town, said, Steck said, sounding slightly out of breath. I thought about it. Did you hear about the men? Carsman shook his hand. What men? Coming out of the swamps, Steck pointed vaguely to Sunward. Three of them, walking together. Carsman held the nut between his teeth for a moment, turning it round with his tongue. No one lives in the swamps, he said. Maroons do. Not round here, said Carsman. Not for long, anyway. There were always a few people who, re who rejected life of dependence on one temple or another and tried to strike out on their own, but maroon colonies seldom lasted more than a few months. Without a temple to provide food and drinkable water, life was desperately harsh. Few food crops would grow in the dead, dry soil. The native plants, fanweeds and water vines that covered the brackish waters of the swamps and the gnarled bushes of the brightside deserts were all inedible, good for nothing more than raw mass in the temple's converters. A few maroon colonies turned to banditry, preying on trucks along the road, until a Muljedi sent temple soldiers to hunt them down and crucify them as a warning to others. In the end, all the colonies failed. Any survivors crept back to the road to be reintegrated into the closest strip town. Maybe they're out-of-towners who overslept and forgot to leave with the rest, Carsman suggested. Steck shook his head. They're coming across the desert. He sat down in the chair opposite Carsman. You know how I've been working on that high spire up on Tower 24? There's this one finial there, right on the edge. If I can just expose the base plate, I think I, I can get the whole thing free. He patted the cutting torch to his hip. Anyway, I was up, with this, up there this morning, and I happened to look to Sunwood. And? Well, I saw something moving. First I thought it was just bits of dry vegetation, picked up by the wind. When I looked again, it was closer. And that's when I realized they were actually moving toward the town. Men, said Carsman. Men, women, whatever, but human, headed this way. Huh. Carsman cracked another nut. They came from the swamps, repeated Steck. You should come and see. Why me? asked Carsman rhetorically. You're the mayor, Steck said. Carsman grunted. He tilted his head back and spat the husk of the nut over the windbreak. Very well, he said. Take me there. A small crowd had gathered at the edge of the road drawn up in a cautious semicircle about the three strangers. Carsman counted fewer than 20 people in all. Most of the people of the strip town were still in their shelters, sleeping off the excesses of the festival. The strangers appeared to be human, or at least close enough to the human baseline to be counted as such. The one that Carsman took to be the leader was androgynously handsome, with strong sculpted features, dark hair pulled back in a short ponytail. There was something almost foppish about his manner, but Carsman knew better than to let himself be deceived by appearances. The second man was small, slightly built, with a narrow, forgettable face. But for the unusual cut of his clothes, he could have passed for a local, his skin and hair only a shade lighter than theirs. He held himself a little apart from the others, as if hoping to escape attention. The third man was not someone you could overlook. He was a pallid giant, taller even than Carsman, and still broader across the shoulders. His shaven scalp was covered with a dense mass of tattoos. Like the others, he carried no weapons openly, but his long coat could have concealed a small arsenal. Instead of a dust mask, he wore a khaki scarf wrapped around the lower part of his face. His eyes were invisible behind a narrow visor of smoked glass. 
More than anything else, their clothing proved they were not maroons. Instead of rags, they were dressed in close-fitting outfits with breeches and outer jackets of military cut. All three wore light packs and webbing harnesses hung with pouches and small pieces of equipment the castmen could not immediately identify. Even unarmed, there was something unmistakably alert and martial about the way they stood. Castman knew soldiers when he saw them. Any conversation that had been going on before Castman and Steck arrived had died away. A few of the men in the crowd held tools as if ready to use them as weapons, obviously distrustful. They relaxed slightly as Castman approached, relieved that the matter was now out of their hands. The ponytailed leader registered the movement. He turned toward Castman. You, big man, you in charge here? Not me, said Castman quickly. The stranger continued as if he had not spoken. Where can we get some food and a place to stay? If you've got script to spend, any of the shops along the road, Carstman told him. And if we haven't, asked the smaller of his two companions, you can go turn a wheel at the temple. The soldier's eyes narrowed, as if he suspected that he was being mocked. Is this your town? he asked. Carstman shook his head. So if you don't run the place, who does? The Muljaddy, of course, Carstman said. What's a Muljaddy? the stranger asked. Someone in the, in the crowd at his back tittered then fell quickly silent as the soldier glanced their way. One of Carstman's personas, the one he thought of as diplomat, tried to come to the fore, but Carstman quickly pushed the persona back. He felt a momentary disorientation before diplomat reluctantly unloaded itself and let Carstman take control of his own mind again. Diplomat would be the right choice, of course. Diplomat was all about nuanced communication, about smoothing out the rough spots and the misunderstandings. The castman had no desire to take on the role of emissary. Whatever was happening, he suspected it was better not to get involved. The star people could find their own way to the temple, and the Muljaddy could deal with them. It was none of his business. You're not from here, said Steck. Are you off a starship? The stranger turned to look at him. That's right. There was a ripple of movement in the crowd, as if the onlookers were uncertain whether to draw closer to the visitors or to pull back to a safer distance. So why are you here? asked one of the bolder spirits. We're here, the stranger said, to kill a woman. They're soldiers, aren't they? said Steck as he and Carstman walked back towards Kido's. Of a kind, Carstman glanced back over his shoulder to verify that, that the three strangers were still walking the other way, headed down the road toward the temple. A few curious townspeople followed them, keeping their distance. Could you take them? asked Steck. Carstman stopped. What? Could you beat them in a fight? Carstman shook his head in exasperation. Steck, I don't think you understand what soldiers are. Me? I'm a brawler. Round here, I pass for a tough guy. Those three? They're professional killers. They're biohacked, chipped, wired. They can butcher you nine different ways while you're still thinking about where to land the first punch. I wouldn't last 15 seconds. Don't sell yourself short, said Warrior, his speech a flicker of aggression in Carstman's head. You and me, the old, like old times, we could take the big one out, no problem. You saw the way he stood. Size always makes them sloppy. They get used to winning fights by sheer muscle and mass. Overconfidence kills. And what if he has a warrior of his own, Carstman asked. He felt a tremor of hesitation from the persona. We're better, Warrior insisted. You don't know that, said Carstman. What were you saying about overconfidence? Which one's the most dangerous? asked Steck. Huh? The soldiers. Which one do you think is the most dangerous? Carstman shunted Warrior to the back of his mind. I don't know, he said. The, the little guy, maybe, or, or the one with long hair. Steck stopped and looked at him, frowning. Not that huge guy. He's bigger than you are. Carstman shrugged. Maybe, he conceded, unwilling to go into his reasons. Listen, Steck, they're all dangerous. You stay away from them and tell everyone else to do the same. Any, any idiot who gets in their way is going home dead. Do you think they're really off a starship? Probably. And they came all, all this way just to kill a woman? That's what they said. Why would they do that? Steck asked. Carstman did not answer. He had been wondering the same thing himself. Thank you.
great. Okay, and we're going to take a 10-minute break or so. <clears throat> Come and buy books and have them sign them. Do that and have a drink. We'll be back. Hello, everybody. We're back. Ooh, sorry, I didn't mean to start yelling. We're back. Hey. Hello. So welcome to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, a few more people we have scheduled for next year are April 17th, we have Nathan Ballingren and Arca Martin. And May 15th, we have Simon Strances. And in between, we're not sure yet. But Okay, our next reader <coughs> is Brooke Bolander. She writes weird things of indeterminate genre, most of them leaning rather heavily toward fantasy or general all-around weirdness. She attended the University of Leicester studying history and archaeology and is an alum of the 2011 Clarion Writers Workshop at UFC, sorry, UCSD. Her stories have been featured in Lightspeed, Tor.com, Strange Horizons, Uncanny, and various other fine purveyors of the fantastic. She has been a repeat finalist for the Nebula, the Hugo, the Locust, and the Theodore Sturgeon. Oh, I'm in and out of this, sorry. <clears throat> Much to her unending bafflement. Follow her at bookbolander.com or at Twitter at B.B. Bolander. Please welcome Brooke Bolander. So I'm going to read you a very serious story here. Like, since you probably know me from my, my book, which is, you know, not light, happy fair, I thought I'd bring you some not light, happy fair, which is coming out in Uncanny, I think, next month. It is called... The Tale of the Three Beautiful Raptor Sisters and the Prince Who is Made of Meat. It is, as you can tell from the title, it's a, it's a very serious fairy tale, so like, get your jammy jams on and like, get comfy, snuggle down with me, and come with me, if you will, on a journey. Once upon a time, long, 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 long ago, there were three raptor sisters hatched beneath a lucky star. They lived in a wood together, they stole sheep and cattle together, and all in all, there were no tighter hunting pack pride of matriarchal dromedosaurs between the mountains and the sea. The oldest was called Skrit, which roughly translated to something you vocal cords can pronounce means Allie. She was oldest by approximately six minutes and cleverest by her own assessment. Second, the claw free of her shell was Rrrr, known henceforth as Betty. She was quiet, good at sneaking, and fond of the way fireflies buzzed and glowed and crunched in one's mouth when snapped up on a balmy summer evening. The last two emerged, and the others that considered, considered selling pulling her egg before it finally began to crack was Sss, or Cece. She was the smallest of the three and the most dangerous for it. Favorite thing in all the world beside her sisters was raw woodsmen. Happy was the trio, uh, happier than liver and shrieks in the final pounce. Warmer than blood and sundered stone, but happy makes for a short story, love of my gizzard, and an uneventful one to boot. Let us set a snare on the path for our three beautiful raptor sisters. We shall give him a head full of hair as golden as a stolen egg's yolk, skin as pale as a hatchling's tooth, and eyes of a glorious fruity green. We'll hang a title around his neck. First and only son of a king, so rich and privileged he never even bothered to try devouring his siblings in the nest. We'll send him a riding aimlessly through the forest on a nice plump horse, wandered off from a royal hunt. Now, the king's subjects knew all about this particular forest and avoided it like the plague, and if the prince had thought to ask them, they could have easily told them why this was so. If you know a blessed thing about royalty, however, you'll have already guessed that he had bothered doing no such thing. He blundered across fields and through open gates like a stunned sheep, never stopping to consider whether it was allowed or advisable. He rode by pleasants, peasants toiling in the fields, wearing masks on the back of their heads, and thought, how quaint and fashionable, I shall have to have one of my own made. A little further still, and he came to the edge of the settled fields, where the villagers were ringed with, villagers were ringed with stockades taller than steeples. What an overreaction, he laughed to himself. The wolves and the bandits in these parts aren't that spry, surely. And crossing road even... Pardon. Muddy River crisscrossed with three-toed tracks. What large chickens they have here. Over a bridge scoured with tube marks. Do the locals never take care of these things themselves? Must it always be the gentry? And through a bone-littered fin. A plague must have occurred. 
he trotted, right up to the end, edge of the forest where the novelly needed cypress trees grew. Never for the slightest second did the prince notice he was being followed, which confused poor Cece out hunting with her sisters to no end. Even the most distracted farmer, a heedless young stag, if he lies in the backs of their necks before the teeth and claws came calling. She said to herself, cocking her head askew. He smelled fine, but his lack of attention concerned her. Perhaps, she thought, he was some sort of poison decoy set up by a village witch to ensnare them? Plump as a partridge and blank-eyed as a bullfrog, tempting to be sure. But one can never be too careful. She decided to eat his stallion instead and consult her sisters about the rest. Oh, such a long face. Don't concern yourself a feather tip about that poor horse. For it opened up like a generous man's gut between Vinny's Cece's teeth and talons, and not a hunk went to waste. The prince tumbled off into the undergrowth, surprised for the first time in all his days. Well, he said, blinking on his bottom, that was unexpected. Others might have taken Cece's distractedness as a blessing from above and made a break for the high hills, but not the prince. He watched her taking apart that stallion like a Sunday roast with slight dismay and a deeply furrowed brow, trying to figure out puzzle what had just happened and what might come next. How the dickens am I going to get home now? Cece got her fill for the time being and turned back to the issue of the prince, almost as puzzled as the lad himself. He wasn't running. When you ate someone's horse, there was usually a fair amount of running and howling and desperate screaming, crunch, crunch, crunch of undergrowth before the shriek, snap, gurgle of their head twisting off its stalk. She couldn't very well be expected to pounce on a thing that just sat there like a lump, and she was full of horse now besides. She said, picking bits of gilded livery out of her teeth. Definitely on a naturalness. Her mind made up. She set up to drive him back to her older sisters. He let himself be nudged and directed all the way there with only mild complaints, still trying to puzzle out a way to get home without his horse. said Betty, thwacking her tail thoughtfully. No wise decision to bring him back untouched, for no human safety devoured ever blundered into their woods and not at least made a jackrabbit's best effort at escaping. What were the people plotting? Is this some sort of devilment sent by villagers tired of their predations? Agreed Allie, scratching her neck with a back talon until rainbow feathers flew. Cece had once again shown what a clever girl she was. Surely this was a trap. If the eighth the shiny blank-eyed man, all three would sicken. But what did it mean? Were there more coming? Was it time to find a new hunting ground? That thought was a droop feather dull sadness to the sisters, for these woods were passing pleasant. Oh, sunny rocks and sandy wallows and hungry, desperate farmers turned hunters scrounging for a meal. None of them wished to ever leave. They cocked their heads and narrowed their eyes and pushed their feather heads together, each taking strength from the other, trying to think of solution. The prince sat in the middle of their circle, unconcerned, wondering if perhaps someone from the castle would come looking for him soon. At last, Cece spoke again. She knew what had to be done. Not a pleasant task, no. Not a fine old flurry of fish and fear, not a warm afternoon snout deep in a chest cavity, this. The only way to make sure of their safety she could send skittering from beneath the ferns of her mind. Screw it, she said, and the other two trilled alarms until she shushed them with a gentle hiss. To find out what the men were plotting, she would have to go to where the human pack leaders nested. And so as not to incite suspicion, she would have to do it alone. Chirplings, if you only knew how those sisters ache to be sundered for in so short a time, I rather hope you never find out. It's a thorn throbbing in the foot. It's a louse gnawing in a feather between the haunches you can never quite scratch. A raided nest in your center without a single blessed egg drop spared. The sisters understood that it must be so when they thought about it, but it was almost too much to bear. They trilled and chirped and butted heads, whistling comfort to each other. To see it would have burst your heart, and then they would have eaten what was left of you. Really, it's best for anyone that you weren't nearby at the time. They reluctantly said their goodbyes with a swish and a snap and a final mournful hiss. When they were done, Cece turned to the prince and crouched at his feet. Rrr, she said reluctantly. Felt a shameful thing to allow a mammal such congress, and yet she could think of another way. The prince couldn't speak their beautiful hunter's tongue, but he knew what fields he looked like, and he knew what a steed looked like better still. Once more, the heavy weight of having to make a decision on his own lifted. He climbed onto Cece's back, pulling her feathers terribly in the process. Tally-ho, you strange beast, he said, cheerful not the danger of thinking had passed. He yanked a handful of her neck plumage and clapped her in the sides with his booted heels, slipping and sliding as he tried to stay aboard, 
Let's go. I know the way. It's a long ride back to the castle, darling. Once by the end of it, CC regretted a decision to go out hunting alone that day about as much as she'd ever regretted anything in her short, simple life. <laughs> the court was more than a little disconcerted when the prince came back missing his stallion. The fact that he rode a rainbow feathered creature with cunning eyes, a stump full of sharp white teeth, and lethal claws in each bipedal foot was also the source of much talk. But the loss of the thoroughbred was a blow to all and sundry, for he had been a stud of sun renown. I had plans to race him this summer, the king said. What a shame. I raised him from a weanling, said the head grooms when his face stricken. He was more like a brother to me than a mere beast. Oh, this is not good, whined the vizier, twisting his hands together nervously. You're going to bring him to the next king's over a final finest mare as an act of friendship. What will they say? Has anyone else noticed the prince is riding a wolf-eyed she-dragon that walks like a man? The princess betrothed said. Nobody had bothered answering this last question. Of course they had noticed. They weren't blind. Had she noticed that the prince had come on without sunspot, the kingdom's beloved, bloody mare? Salian? Obviously there's just no fault of the prince, but perhaps if the princess had attended to him better, he wouldn't have cut cause to go running all over hill and yon. If she was so worried about the beast, why didn't she show some initiative for once and find something useful to go and do, instead of bothering the men at their important matters of counsel? So while they mourned and groused and dabbed their eyes with handkerchiefs of watered silk, the princess sighed and cautiously, for no foolish this she-mammal, led Cece to a stall in the royal stables, where she made sure their strange guest was comfortable as best she could. Rrrr, said Cece. Matters, after all, were important. You're quite welcome, replied the princess, who was also a witch and more than capable of understanding any number of languages. Is there anything else I can provide you with? Sissy could think of nothing. She was also a little surprised in mammal speaking her tongue. She said instantly. Oh, you'll live long and you'll learn all manner of things. Yes, you're welcome to stay here as long as you like. Although I do wish she would explain why. Please don't eat the dogs or the horses or the stable boys. They're expensive to replace. Someone will bring you dinner shortly. She gave a little curtsy and smiled a sad smile with all the feathers rubbed off. Good evening. Only a day Cece had been in the place where pack leaders nested, and already she was woefully confused. She met a nest in the sand of the stall and fell asleep, escaping into uncomplicated dreams of hunting with her sisters. The absence of them throbbed beneath her skin like an ingrown pinion. So deep was her sleep, she didn't even notice the prince and his subjects. Grief over her sunspot spent, peering through the bars of her stall with some interest. As the days passed, no one else questioned her presence in the castle rounds. She wondered where she pleased, insisting the urge to take down slow children and fast dogs when they told horsemen into her path. And every morning and evening, the princess brought her a shank of lamb or beef. Raw, she preferred it. It was a stiflingly boring existence. There was a plot to hunt the sister down. It was a well-kept secret, for no hunting party was ever mustered or terrible weapon unveiled. She told herself to be patient. Patience can ruin a hunt as thoroughly as waiting too long to spring. Sometimes a prince would drop by Asir, a train of hangers-ons and court subjects trailing behind him like raggedy tail. Almost all of them wore masks affixed to the back of their heads, for the princess said this was the height of fashion out west. He liked to ride around the courtyard while the others watched, and even had a special saddle made for the purpose. She allowed this humiliation, though it cost her much impatience and pride. Her sisters in her home, oh, they were worth it, and a thousand other miseries. Patience before the lunge, love for her pack, and caution that mosquitoes sharpened her neck whenever she was tempted otherwise. The only bright soft spots were when the princess came to visit. She was surprisingly clever for a mammal, and sometimes the two of them would talk. She too had been sundered from her sisters, courted many leagues from her father's woodland kingdom to marry the dull-eyed prince. They wanted her to make sons and embroideries. All she wanted, all she'd ever wanted, was to live by herself somewhere in a deep, dark forest with a nice garden patch for her spells and a rabbit for a stew pot, and absolutely, positively no neighbors. This dream had been taken for her, from her, snatched from her jaws before she even had a hope of swallowing. Now as she was ringed round by people day and night, never allowed to be alone, her life was settled beneath the weight of the prince and his needs, never washed up after himself, he had no initiative. It was her job to think for him, her and his advisors, and the advisors were as empty-headed as skulls in a ramble. Why do you linger here where no one could stop you from being on your way, said the princess when asked, once asked. You speak so fondly of your sisters and your old home. What keeps you in this place? Cece did not answer. She wanted to. Wanted to flat out ask. Wanted to trust someone. Wanted a sister to rub her snout against. But she could not bring herself to. Not yet. 
And oh, best beloved squeaking in the eggshells, that hesitation would cost her dearly. For one night, the princess did not bring her the evening meal. A stranger was sent to the task, as happened on occasion. Loyal to dullness by weeks of uneventful boredom, she did not smell the sleeping powder folded within. She gulped it down with a toss and a snap. And drowsiness like nothing she ever felt seemed thick in her life as to slow mud. She turned three times before falling into a deep and dreamless slumber. When she awoke, her claws were capped with beeswax, her jaws were fretted with an iron muzzle, and the doors of her stall were bolted and double bolted with lock and chain. Back in the forest, the leaves were starting to turn orange and gold. Soon it would be molting season, the season of slow blood and deep nests, and still Cece did not return to her sisters. The pain of her absence began to fester in a worry. Where? said Betty, stepping mosquito from the air. Shrew! agreed Allie. Something had definitely gone amiss, for there was no puzzle devised by any ape that can compound their clever sister small for this long. Shadows strong and fast as thought, the sisters sprinted to the edge of their wood. There they bobbed and tarried, scenting the air, or each hugging at their ankles. Many a longing glass they threw over their shoulders at the deer forest, its mossy fallen logs, the thickets full of rabbits and doe, the hot springs where mud bubbled like a warm kills insides. It's a good place, and the pull of it was strong. But the call of their lost sister was stronger. As the moon rose and the first nightingale sang, they slipped away together down the man path, leaving the forest behind. In an unlikely turn of events, the prince had done something not a single soul in the court foresaw. He had taken initiative and come up with a complex plan. It wasn't terribly complex, to be sure, and of no great importance to anyone but himself. But even those who had doubted him before said this was a turning point, the first really king-like action he had ever undertaken. At some point, the prince had decided, on his own, with no suggestions from anyone, that he would like to make Cece a permanent part of the court menagerie in his own personal mount. More shocking still, he had foreseen the fact that she might object to lifelong servitude, and perhaps with poor Sunspot's fate somewhere in his memory, saw to that she was drugged, muzzled, and chained first. Everyone was very proud of him. They told him so, often while patting him on the shoulder and making cooing noises like prideful parental pigeons. The princess was as blindsided about this decision-making as the rest of the court. She had no idea it was coming until she arrived at the stables to find Cece snarling and shaking beneath the prince's saddle. A furious quick silver rainbow bound in clattering iron. Seeing Miss Petrow, the prince waved and pointed downwards. Look, he said, I made a real choice, like you're, just like you're always asking me to. And the princess staggered back as if struck. She caught Cece's glittering yellow slit of an eye, and what she read there chilled her blood to pudding. Stay calm. I'll figure this out, she tried to say in a look. And then she excused herself and spent the rest of the day in thoughtful, panicked solitude. For if the prince had gotten the knack of making decisions, that signaled her own freedom's doom. In a man of his nature, it was almost worse than being incapable of making a decision at all. She stayed in her study, scrying until after dark. When the moon was high and the crickets loud at the reveling, she slipped back out to the stables, a lantern in her hand. Cece was not asleep. She lay curled in a feathery heap in the floor of her stall. Already there were welts and bare spots among her slats, snout plumage where the iron muzzle had rubbed. I'm sorry, said the princess. I didn't know I was going to do this. I didn't see it coming. Brrr, said Cece. He didn't outwit me, the princess snapped. He accidentally figured out how to stitch two thoughts together to make a third. <laughs> but all of that is beside the point. Listen. Cece didn't have much of a choice in the matter. In my room, there is a scrying vessel, and in that scrying vessel, I have seen your sisters slipping towards the castle along the old road. They are coming to save you. If they kill the guards at the gate, more will come with pikes and arrows and swords, and both of them will die. All Cece could manage in response to this news was a low moan of misery. Her claws were dulled and her jaws held fast. Even if she escaped, how could she possibly help them? Perhaps sensing her thoughts, for again, this good mammal had many talents, the princess raised a hand. You cannot help them, she said. They cannot storm the castle by force. What they need now is stealth. They need trickery, and they need an ally to help them. And here she smiled with her flat, dull teeth. No beautiful curled sickle bow in that smile, but it held its own kind of danger. You cannot help them, she repeated, but I can. They came running, her sisters, striding, slipping, sweeping down the man road like the shadows of leaves in a gale. They whistled and fluted hunting songs as they ran, and villagers bolted their doors and pulled their shutters and slammed their chimney flues shut with a bang. Mules spooked and carts overturned, cheeses rolled and apples bruised. Human children in their beds woke wailing from nightmares. 
where they were hunted through tall grasses by yellow-eyed wisps of smoke. Cats and dogs, apt to wander the lanes, later night vanished, never to be heard from again. And still they raced on, veering left, neither left nor right, following a call on their hearts and heads as the moon sank and the sky turned pink as a flayed rib cage. On towards the horizon, where the spires of the castle loomed black. Almost to the drawbridge they were, and the world growing lighter every moment when a figure stepped out to intercept them. This was easily dealt with. As one, they launched themselves at the woman, claws extending, teeth bared, and oh, to kill was sweet. Through the air they sailed, beautiful to see in the moment before the blow. A word rang out, a sharp, sudden, unexpected command. Sssst! In mid-leap, they suddenly stopped, tumbling to earth like shaken fruit. Allie was first back on her feet. She scrambled back up with the hiss of confusion. Listen, said the princess. Quickly, for that moment, her life hung by a thread. Just listen. I know where your sister is, and I have a plan. Witches have many spells, my hatchling. Some of these you may have heard of, and many more have escaped your snuffle, for you are young, and the inside of your shell is damp yet. Spells to tempt the rabbit into the snare. Spares, spells to make their flowers grow. Spells to make bones stand and sing their true names, to see the future in the spiral of the tadpoles' insides, and the past inside of mosquitoes' last meal of blood. Shape-changing spells. Songs to sicken and songs to heal. Spells of glamour. Take a feather of the rainbow sheen of oily water. Sing a song of apples and barley and hearth ash across its length, wrapping every burble with burlap and lullabies, every ratite with human dullness and human cares. When the song is done and the feather will swaddle in a fairly a shimmer with dignity, take it and wave the little object from snout tip to tail tip until hunting stripes and emerald plumage and yellow slitted eyes crouch and seem behind conjured ape shapes of cambered crones. No hunters here said the bread, baker, bread bakers and candlestick makers on their way to the early market. A sickle sickle clawed them into a moray pair of cutting furrows into high wheat. Just a couple of grandmothers on their way to the castle. Baskets of apple and quince and rosemary dangling from their elbows like broken backed prey. Good morning to you, old mother, said the guard at the shawbridge. Are those apples for the king? The first woman looked down at her basket, then back up at the guard. Yes, she said in a loud, croaking voice. Fruit for the shiny ape king's flat teeth. <laughs> Mammals love fruit, her sister added, nodding emphatically. <laughs> uh, the elderly were often saying such things, so the guard took no notice. He waved them onto the front gate where a second guard loitered. Fine day for Australia, aunties, he said. Are those quinces for the cook? The second old woman cocked her head and fixed the guard with a thoughtful stare. For some reason, he found this deeply unsettling. Some voice in the deep depths of his hindbrain hooted for him to run. Croaking, she finally said. Yes, humans eat burned things like rats. <laughs> Squeaking, agreed the first sister. Squeak, squeak, crunch. They crunch so good. And the two of them laughed. Every hair on the guard's neck and arms remembered it had once belonged to a small, furry, squeaking thing and tried to climb as high as it could go. He waved them hastily onto the castle where they plumped past plump, toddling children, arthritic ancient dogs, and bare-bellied donkeys tethered fast to hitching posts. But there wasn't a lot of around those cats. Glamour never worked on cats. They saw right through the princess's spells, recognized the kindred hunters, and found pressing reasons to be elsewhere. Need a hand with those baskets, ma'am? Says a passing stable boy, eyeing the apples with interest. The oldest of the sisters snapped her head around the face in a way that would haunt the lad every time he thought about it, eventually driving him to a life in the priesthood. <laughs> Humans are very soft and spook easily. One brush with fangs in the dark and they bruise like dropped peaches, never understanding that life is a series of extinction events barely avoided. No, she said, letting control from her lips. For the princess puffed tender stomach for plumping. Soft, echoed the second, unprotected. The princess used her time wisely as she did all things. She went to the key room, where many keys hung like iron teeth from many jagged hooks. No one guarded the keys room, key room's vault, for the king had never landed upon a reason to appoint a watch there. Not Cynthia, is the son, the king, his son, the king, but still not the starfish claw on the toe. Emmy and the court had benefited from his... benefited from his thoughtlessness on this matter. How much worse did we grow under the prince? Someday was not something the princess intended to wait around and find out. She met no one in the hallway, not that anyone would have questioned her if they had. She was considered more or less ornamental by most of the prince's advisors, but a princess is still a princess, not to be questioned face to face. 
down the great stairway and out to the stable yard where Cece's two sisters went in still wrapped in their glamour. Sister, said one, inside! And inside, indeed, from inside the stable came the most, most pathetic whistling and trilling in response. Inside, repeated the other, throwing herself against the open door with a crash. Several grooms glanced their way curiously. Shh, said the princess. Shh, old mother's patience. She unlocked the doors and they went inside, past horses screaming and spooking immortal terror predators they can only smell, and rats flaming like the roof was aflame. The entire stable was in an uproar. The princess knew she only had a little time before someone rushed in to check the cause. Hastily now, she led them to Cece's stall. Sister, said the first. Sister, said the second. said Cece. She tried to thrust her snout through the bars, only to be turned back with a clang by the iron muzzle. Enraged, she tried again and again until the air rang with the clamor. Beneath, between the noise of the panicked horses, the frantic calls of the sisters, and the blacksmith jangle of Cece's fury, the princess could barely hear herself think. She put her finger to her lips and allowed a clear, sharp shepherd's whistle. She would let every groomsman in the area know something was amiss if they hadn't already noticed. Cece, Allie, and Betty froze. Here, she said, I'm coming in. She shouldered past the sisters. One by one, she dug into the great padlocks with her keys until their insides snapped and twanged open like cracked bones. When each was unlocked and the chains lay spooled and limp and got spirals across the floor, she rolled the door back and stepped inside. The princess had never been this close to Cece before. She smelled of dusty feathers and blood, musk and rotten meat, and sweet crushed grasses. She smelled like freedom, and the princess felt a sharp, sh- sharp stab of longing lodge in her chest. Cece had never been this close to the princess before. She smelled those spices and sweat and human cares, responsibility and duty and other things Cece only knew in passing. She smelled like a trapped thing, a forest creature locked in a stall far away from the sunlit glades and solitude. And Cece felt something like pity for the ugly creased face, naked and flat, and already lined with sadness. The princess reached out with a final tiny key shed like a talon, fingers searching beneath feathers until she found the muscles lock. There was a rattle and a click, and the ugly thing, ugly thing fell from Cece's snout like a pride open oyster. Oh, hatchlings, a reunion ensued, the glorious shrieking and fluting and twining of necks, the whip-whapping of tails and the flaring of plumage, the rubbing of snouts and the click-clack of sickle claws freed from their beeswax flots, tapping a joyous tattoo on the floor. The horses didn't appreciate it, not one blessed bit, but I know you would have with your clever slitted eyes and your sharp senses of scent. The strength of the pride is in the many. Split us apart and we are nothing, but together, oh, together, there is nothing we cannot bring crashing and spouting to earth. And so it was with the three sisters. Apart, they had snuck and slunk and relied on trickery for their survival. Rejoined as a trio, they turned and flowed back through the stable like a burst dam, unafraid of anything. The princess would have had them make their way out with some caution, but she knew the extent of her power over them had fallen apart with a muzzle, and for that she was glad. She followed them to the barn doors, where Cece suddenly paused. Huh? she said. The others looked at her in surprise. The princess did as well. It was not a question she had been expecting. I, I am a princess, she said haltingly. My happiness is of little regard. It is my responsibility to stay here and see that the prince takes care of himself, and more importantly, his people. If he should stumble, stumble face first into a chamber pot and drown, or decide to hunt the poor for sport now he's gotten into the habit of deciding things, I would feel bitter guilt over the matter. Rrr, Stacy repeated gently. Princess's silence this time was lengthy. No, she said. No, I am not happy. I do not know why I have taken this responsibility. It was chosen for me. I was told it was the right thing to do, and I allowed myself to believe what I was told. The prince and I were well matched, it seems. Cece turned. The saddle was still on her back. There had been no time thus far in which to pry it off along with the rest. As she had with the prince in the woods, she crouched at the princess's feet, waiting. This time, at least, there was no shame in the gesture. It was an offer extended to a fellow huntress. Freedom offered for freedom. The princess thought about all the ways she had allowed herself to be yoked, making choices for so many others. She thought about the sweet solitude of the forest, birdsong and vine wrap, and the taste of fresh rabbits blow on her tongue. She would never have to wear a corset or comb her hair or entertain anyone she didn't feel like entertaining. She wouldn't even have to wear clothes if she didn't feel like it. If villagers came to visit wishing for her blessings or curses or poultices, they could handle the sight of a crone's bare bottom or they could turn around and go home empty-handed. Free blessed stiff suit would be up to her. There's not enough pity in me for that man to keep me shackled here, she said, and climbed aboard. Let us leave this place. Those that saw them go never forgot it, and the incident very quickly passed into legend. 
Morning their turncoat princesses and two bell dames who looked not a day over 110 stole into the king's stables and made off with the princess's newest treasure. The latter two running alongside Bastion than anyone would have thought mortally possible. And the guards were too stunned to stop them as they flashed by. Back through the great stone gate, over the drawbridge, and way down the open road they flew, where not even the dearly departed sunspot could have kept up with their pace. And that is almost the end of our tale, little downy toothlings. Princess went back with the three beautiful sisters to their forest home, where she built a little crookedy cabin in a sun devil clearing. There she grew into the powerful witch crone she had always longed to be, responsible for no one's choices but her own, unless they ventured into the forest and paid her for the privileges first. And many folk th through the years did, driven either by desperation or lust or greed or a fear greater than that of the things they li lived within the tree line. Those that returned spun wild tales of naked witches, feathered shadows that fluted and stalked and sang, and a little cabin that walked about on scaly toes tipped with shining sickle claws. Those that didn't kept their lies clenched between grinning white teeth, boring beetles and earthworms with their blathers as infantry wore on and the leaf drift deepened above. Allie, Betty, and Cece were never again bothered by men's wiles or lack thereof. Though the princesses council, through the princesses' council, they learned to stop hunting sheep and cattle and other things that drew attention, focusing instead on deer and boar and those visitors that annoyed the princess just a little too much. Sometimes they would hunt together, the princess crouching naked to stride Cece's back as they slipped through the trees, starlight flashing off her blade as she chants for the spring. Other times the three would sun themselves in her front yard, and she would brush the dry blood from their feathers with a fine-toothed mother of pearl comb, the only thing she had kept from her time as royalty. It was a good life, streaked with just the right amount of companionship and just the right amount of solitude, and none of them ever regretted their choices, which is a fine way to grow old if you can manage the trick. But what are the prints, you ask? What would happen to that worthy? Ah, oh, bless what a stone-turner you are. No snail or hole will ever escape your jealous small one, and no mistake. If you must know all the things, I'll tell you of his fate. They came upon him not far from the castle walls, returning from a late night at the pub. He was very pleased. He had chosen eight different ales on his own and really felt himself on a roll with all the decision-making he had lately been engaged in. Well, maybe he wouldn't even need a counselor of his ear or princess telling what to do. Maybe he could handle everything on his own from here on out. The possibilities were suddenly blindingly limitless. A little too blinding, really. He could feel the stirrings of a really impressive nasty headache coiling behind his eyeballs. He blamed on the bar keep and made a mental note to have the man punished for allowing his sovereign lord to be so much freedom. The morning sun couldn't be thrown into the stocks, but someone else could certainly pay. Like the very firmament above had heard his request, a shadow fell across his princely brow, cool and blessedly dim. He luxuriated in it for a moment before cracking open one eye to see what presence had honored, upon, honored his unspoken demand. Oh, he said. Hello there. I don't remember giving you permission to take my creature out for a ride, darling. You didn't, said the flat reply. Ah, well, that's good. I remember most decisions I make. You're all so good, and I'm getting such a knack for it. The prince squinted at them a little more closely, swaying like a cattail. And I don't think I recognize your friends. Have we been introduced? Aunties have not yet met? Old wet nurses? Tears from the convent, perhaps? Shiny blank-eyed man! Soft round prince belly! Oh, very good, very good. Lovely to meet you both. Sorry I had to be in such a fashion. He belched, staggered, nearly went over but righted himself, just as the no-return point of his totter. The world was spinning merrily. Now then, I, I don't think I like you taking Bertie out for a stroll without asking first. Bertie? You named her Bertie? Not about myself. Another good decision. He beamed blearily. Please stop interrupting. It's hard for me to collect my thoughts when everything's whirling and you won't stop nattering on. Anyhow, next time you maybe stop to ask me before taking liberties and borrowing my keys, I should be as kind and as fair as any queen could hope for my lord and master. Disregard me and there's not going to be a next time. The prince blinked. I'm, I'm sorry, what? You'll have to speak up. I didn't quite catch that. The princess edged Cece closer until the sister's breath stirred his golden locks and his rumpled coattails and the split ends of his little royal mustache. She leaned down. There is not going to be a next time, she repeated. Cece is going home and I'm going with her. I'm glad you learned the trick of making your own decisions because I won't be around to monitor them for you anymore. She's well in the future, sire. Someday your subject will rely upon you. She made a move to ride on by. Prince squinted and furrowed on her words for long enough that she almost made it. 
Her stirrups were almost level with him by the time he finally puzzled out what was going on through the brewery haze and grabbed her by the leg. I've just made another decision, he said. There was no timber to his words, and the princess didn't like it one bit. Is it to let go of my ankle before you get kicked in the face? <laughs> You've been a good princess, and finally I asked no matter what my counsel said. Beautiful have around. His grip grew tight and cold as iron, but I don't need people to make my important decisions any longer. In fact, I don't have to listen to anybody. I'm so good at it now. I don't need you sticking around sticking your pies in all my fingers. That's excellent. Pies can always use more fingers up in those. Can we be on our way then? The prince shook his head slowly, winced, and thought better of it. You're riding my property, he said. She isn't your property. She is, and so are you. How's it going to look if you take off? How's it going to look if you take off with something that's rightfully mine by the really excellent choice I made, huh? I can't let you go. Wouldn't be proper. Wouldn't be fitting. He cocked his head, his tone brightening somewhat. Glory, look at him. I'm doing it again. Another decision. How exactly do you plan on stopping me? I don't want to hurt you. And the princess didn't either. It'd be rather like hurting a mean, blundering possum caught in a senior hen's one too many times. But the prince, alas, gave her no choice. I'll send my father's soldiers into every forest between here and the mountains, he said. I'll catch up eventually, and when I do, it won't go easy for you, darling. I can bet a coin with my father's head on that. Decision is in the bag, already made. His face contorted into a petulant. Toddler's expression, a spoiled child teetering on the precipice of a tantrum. I'll have my birdie back. You should have heard the nice things people said about the way I sat on her. I'll have a crossbow bolts put through those other two and decorate our bedchamber with her heads. I'll see. You don't see that, I don't. And the prince's head wasn't the only thing spinning. Sisters had begun to circle, hissing low and long. They knew enough of human speech and enough of the prince to smell the threat in his words. Hungry, said Allie. Blood, said Betty. <sighs> said Cece, vibrating beneath the princess with rage. The princess sighed. She shook her head sadly. All right, then, she said. That's your decision. And you are so very good at decisions now, after all. The best. Here is mine. Run. What? Run. Run fast. That is my final word of advice to you. We'll give you a head start. I can't hold him off for long, though, so you better be quick about it. The petulant child expression was slowly melting from the prince's face as her words thudded home. He let go of her ankle like I'd just come glowing from a blacksmith's forge. You, you wouldn't do that, he said, staggering back. You couldn't. You wouldn't. My father's soldiers would hunt you down. You. I'll take that risk. The matter is already settled. You decided for me. The sisters whistled in delight as he turned and stumbled down the road, making desperate little panic noises. Now, for the final time, run. The hunt was easy, but it was sweet. Oh, yes, indeed, sweet as spring water and heart's blood. A cat may look at a king, but the three beautiful after sisters did far better than that. And they lived happily all the rest of their days, too. There was no luck like that of those who have dined on tyrants and survived to sing the tale. Up and Uncanny? Yep. It came out this month. year? Next month. Next month, yeah. okay. All right. So now you have to buy her book. <laughs> okay, have a few more drinks. You don't have to leave or anything, but welcome uh, back next month and we'll see you. Thank you. <laughs>